We now come to the preaching of God's Word this evening. So if you would, take a copy of uh, the Scriptures and turn to Romans chapter 8. Tonight we will be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. I get the privilege of resuming our series here. Uh, We've heard from Pastor Jason and we've heard from Pat Quinn here looking at Romans chapter 8. Uh, We're calling this series The Greatest Chapter. Why is this such a beloved chapter? Well, largely in part, it ministers to us in such a great way because it is a chapter about assurance. It offers assurance concerning our past, assurance for our present, and assurance for our future. It has been said already The chapter begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. It helps us live today in light of the assurance of eternal life that is ours in Christ. And so it is a great chapter, and it is a chapter that we need to dwell upon in this time. Before I read God's word, would you join me in prayer and asking for God's help again? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help tonight. Help us to hear, read, mark, and inwardly digest and embrace your word so that we will be equipped to glorify Christ and that we would grow in his grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 through verse 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Every couple years or so, movie star Brad Pitt will talk about his religious beliefs. He was raised in what has been described as a devout Southern Baptist family in the state of Missouri. But as a young man, he drifted away from Christianity As a college student, he thought he was agnostic. Later, he flirted with atheism, but that didn't work for him. In recent interviews, in the last year or so, he has said that, and I quote, he clings to his religion, unquote. But when asked what that means, Mr. Pitt will say something like many people in our day would say, that he considers himself to be spiritual, 
And he wants to believe that everything is connected somehow. However, he is not dogmatic about a particular set of beliefs. Now, in an interview back in 2007, he did explain his slipping away from Christianity. And I quote, I'd go to Christian revivals and be moved by the Holy Spirit. And then Brad Pitt went on to say, and I'd go to rock concerts and feel the same fervor, end quote. Whether he realizes it or not, it would seem that his questioning of Christianity began with a confusion about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that he is not the first person to drift away from Christianity because of confusion about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be quick to say he was misled or mistaken, that he was incorrectly taught that we know the Holy Spirit through our feelings. And you would be right, partially right. You would be partially correct, but not completely right. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we experience the living God through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It is experience that is shaped by truth. There is a dangerous ditch that we want to avoid that many have fallen in. And that's when someone interprets the truth of God's word by their experience. No, we are to understand our experiences by the truth of God's word. But God's word is experiential. Because truth, as if I said before, truth is a person. Remember Jesus in John's gospel said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is alive, and he and his father have sent the Holy Spirit so that we might know the one who is the truth. And tonight I won't describe everything the Bible teaches about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. But we're going to focus and learn about his person and his work from this section of Romans chapter 8. It's unavoidable in this, in this part of the chapter. The word pneuma, the Greek word for spirit, occurs 21 times in Romans chapter 8. 19 times it is referring to the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is mentioned 15 times in verses 1 through 17. And so here we are in verses 12 through 17 tonight. If the chapter is about assurance of eternal life, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the Spirit's role in our assurance. Remember back in, in verse 2 of chapter 8, we are told, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. A vital part of the ministry of the Spirit is to minister assurance of that life to the believer. So in verses 12 through 17, we see the difference the Spirit makes. And we have a description of His working in our lives. And it's not merely a feeling of fervor, but it is something we experience. So I want us to think about these verses under three headings tonight. We'll look at verses 12 through 14 under the heading of, if you are in the Spirit, 
you have the power to fight sin. If you are in the Spirit, you have the power to fight sin. And then in verses 15 to 16, by the Spirit, we can know that we are children of God. By the Spirit, we can know that we are children of God. And then verse 17, the Spirit's testimony gives assurance about the future. The Spirit's testimony gives assurance about the future. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. If you are in the Spirit, you have the power to fight sin. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 12 is the conclusion of what Paul has been teaching us in verses 5 through 11. And in verses 5 through 11, he has set an antithesis between flesh and spirit. And Paul's point is that believers are no longer in the flesh, but they are in the spirit. Therefore, they are no longer debtors to the flesh. What does flesh mean? Well, it's used several ways in Scripture. In this sense here, it certainly means the mode of existence of fallen man. Flesh being the mode of existence of fallen man. It means the way of living that is contrary to the will of God. It means living as if you are still spiritually dead or spiritually dead, living after the flesh. But the Spirit is the giver of spiritual life. Therefore, Christians do not have to live under the mastery of the flesh anymore. Now, here in verse 12, it is a statement. It's a summary statement of what has been said in 5 through 11. It's not yet the command. The command comes in the next verse. So, Paul is not saying, don't be a debtor to the flesh. But he is saying that believers are not debtors to the flesh. He's telling us about something, about who we are in Christ. Now, what does a debtor mean? It means that you're obliged to do something. Because you're in the Spirit, you are no longer obliged to do what the flesh desires that is contrary to the will of God and contrary to the Spirit of God. Now, we might expect Paul to follow this up with, so you're not a debtor to the flesh, but now you are a debtor to the Spirit. But he doesn't follow up that way. He'll take us in another direction. We'll see later. But in verse 13, he then brings the imperative home from verse 12. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You are not a debtor to the flesh, but you are to put to death the deeds of the body. You have no obligation, Christian, to the flesh and its desires, no obligation but to kill it. You are free from serving your flesh, but as this verse implies, you still can yield to it. There remains a real danger and what is the danger? That if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What death is spoken of here? Well, it's different than the death that's spoken of previously there in verse 11. This is not merely physical death, but here Paul is speaking of the death that sin deserve. It's eternal death. He's saying if you are not in the spirit, it will show up in your deeds. And if you persist in sinful deeds, 
you will receive sin's consequences. For the wages of sin is death. If you are in the spirit, you will kill the deeds of the body. Notice that he says there, the deeds of the body. Why not the deeds of the flesh? The deeds are the actions expressed through our bodies. The desires of the flesh manifest in the deeds of our bodies, in our actions. Those who are in the spirit struggle with sin. As long as we are in these bodies, the presence of indwelling sin remains. The difference is that by the spirit, we can put sin to death. But the fact is believers must kill the deeds of the body. And this tells us that the sinful impulses that still remain are strong impulses because they must be killed. Here in a chapter on assurance, there is a severe warning. There is an imperative to kill the desires of the flesh so that they would not be expressed in deeds of the body. But here is a severe warning that if we play with sin and do not kill it, it will destroy us. As it's been said, be killing sin or it will kill you. That is why Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to avoid hell and be maimed. Now, what was Jesus getting at? Well, he wasn't saying that our hands and our eyes are what causes the sin, but that's where the deeds of the body take place. That if the desires of the flesh still have reign and rule in our hearts, it will be expressed in our hands and we'll use our eyes for sin. And believers, we must look at the life of many in Scripture who have seen death come to them because they gave in to the desires of the flesh. I think about the life of King Solomon. I think that's a good warning for us. It's a warning that maybe we don't think about enough. Remember that in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon is the new king, the young king. He asked for wisdom. And the beginning of his reign is blessed and prosperous. It goes to 1 Kings chapter 10, and the queen of Sheba is seeking out the young king for his wisdom. And then comes 1 Kings chapter 11. And there it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods 
and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. And then it goes on, and it speaks about the idolatry. And Solomon's end of his reign is a wicked king as he leads God's people astray. But it began with the daughter of Pharaoh and then another princess and another princess. And the desires of the flesh being expressed in the deeds of the body in Solomon, they don't turn back, they don't slow down, they escalate, they speed up to a point where that he's building altars to foreign gods and he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I know I'm going to get email about this. Did Solomon repent? That's a good question. Did he return to the Lord before his death? That's a good question. We must learn from him that believers, we must be killing sin or the desires of the flesh are going to wreak havoc and they will bring us to the cusp of hell itself. That is the the strength of what Paul is saying here. That is the purpose of why he's tucked this in there for us. But to be sure, if you are in the Spirit, you cannot be lost. You will not see eternal death. And if you are in the Spirit, the warnings, like the warning that is is present here in verse 13, the warnings of falling away, away will serve to lead you back to Christ when you are losing your way. And so hear the warning and do not play with sin and instead seek to kill it. But there's greater assurance here right on the heels of verse 13 that if you are in the spirit, you will not be lost. That if you are in the spirit, the flesh will not remain your master and will not overcome you. That the desire of the flesh will not pull you out of your father's hand. It's there in verse 14. For it says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 14, in a, in a different way, restates what we need to hear as believers from verse 13. It's clarifying. All those who are in the Spirit will live like they have the Spirit because they are led by the Spirit. Now, this leading here, it does not mean that God will guide your every decision. The Lord certainly will. He knows our days. Our days are numbered. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows what parking lot, uh, parking spot we need in the parking lot. He knows what tomorrow holds. He knows how to guide every little thing in our life. He is the sovereign Lord of history. But this leading here is talking about being governed by the Spirit. And so what is it telling us? That any human obedience to God's commands, any human obedience that puts off the desires of the flesh and kills the deeds of the body is a result of the Spirit's work. The Spirit's governing authority results in human obedience. The impulse to kill sin is a work of the Spirit. 
The Apostle Paul isn't telling us that we use the Spirit to kill sin, but it is because we are in the Spirit that we do kill sin. See, the Bible is full of choose who you will serve confrontations where there's a fork in the road. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Build your house on the rock or build your house on sand. Choose the broad path that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to life. Every time someone makes the right choice, it is by the Spirit. It is our choice. We must choose it. We must kill our sin. But the reason we can do it is that we are in the Spirit. It is His governing in our life that gets credit for making us into people who make decisions that honor God, who turn away from temptation and obey his commands. So what does it feel like to have the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, one thing we can know from this passage that the Holy Spirit is always gonna lead you away from sin. And it's the Holy Spirit working in your life that will prompt you to deny sin and to turn to Jesus. So don't play with sin. It is the Holy Spirit that would lead you to kill it before it kills you. But then the second thing I want us to see tonight in verses 14 and following, um, there's a theme. It's about being the children of God. And here we're told that by the Spirit, you can know that you are a child of God. Verse 14 goes beyond what verse 13 said. Verse 13 said that, that those who are in the Spirit kill the deeds of the flesh. Verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In verse 12, he started telling us that we are not debtors to the flesh. We might have expected him to say that we are now debtors to God or maybe debtors to the Spirit. We are to be clear that we are debtors to grace. We have been freed from the servitude of the devil and the flesh. And now we do have a new master. We are servants of the Lord. But here, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't want to emphasize that we are debtors to God or that we are debtors to Jesus. But we are told that we are God's children. Jesus has not just purchased us to be his servants, but he paid for our sins so that we might be his brothers and sisters. It is the Holy Spirit who assures us that we are no longer children of the devil and that we are now children of God. And we see that in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but if you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. How does the Spirit confirm to us that we are children of God? First, we are told by contrast, he is not a spirit of slavery. Now, Consider the, the first recipients of this letter, the Roman audience. They lived in a world where your social status was either a citizen, a slave, a freedman, or a foreigner. They would have seen the atrocities of the ancient practice of slavery firsthand. Now, the treatment of slaves would vary by master, and some received relatively better treatments than others. 
However, every slave knew their place. There was no real security in their master's home. They could be thrown out, beaten, or sold at any moment. At best, maybe they would be freed or possibly earn their freedom, but then their relationship to their master would be severed. No matter how well they were treated, there was an underlying fear because they were someone's property and they weren't treated with dignity, not the dignity that their personhood deserved. They would have also seen in their day, the Roman audience, how adoption would give someone a higher social status and increased honor and dignity. In 50 AD, only a few years before Paul's letter to the Romans, the emperor Claudius adopted an 11-year-old named Nero. And Nero was proclaimed across the empire as the son of the greatest gods, Tiberius Claudius. Now Paul is telling a Roman audience that they haven't been adopted by Caesar, but they have been adopted by God. That the creator, the one true God, they can call him father. And that their status in his home is not one of a slave with the underlying fear that they could be sent out at any time. But once made a son and daughter of the father, they are always in the father's home. The Christian teaching of adoption, we understand that it is closely related to our justification. Our adoption comes on the heels of our justification. We are first justified, then adopted. And like justification, our adoption is legal and it's forensic. But in a different way than justification, we experience our adoption. And that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here. We experience it through the Spirit. He is the Spirit of adoption. Our adoption status does not stand afar from us, but it's driven home by the presence of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The early church, they picked this up straight from Jesus. The Old Testament didn't speak of adoption. In the Old Testament, believers did not address God as Father. The Old Testament spoke of God being a father to his people, but how that would happen was veiled until Jesus came. And now we know how God can be a father to sinners. We know how he did it. God can be a father to sinners and welcome them into his family because he sent his eternally begotten son to die for their sins so that they could be welcomed in. And when we cry, Abba, Father, we are calling on God the same way that Jesus did. And that's part of Paul's point here. It's to drive home the status that we received in adoption. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. The New Testament writers often pair Abba with patir, the Greek word for father, for those who are reading their letters who didn't know Aramaic but they decided to preserve the Aramaic word that Jesus would have said, Abba. Now, it's been said that Abba is what a small child would call their father. And it was, 
And it is still in some parts of the world today. And you should have confidence to approach your heavenly father just like a young child running to meet his daddy when his daddy comes home from work. But that isn't the thrust of what Paul wants to communicate at this point. Notice it's by the spirit whom we cry. The cry is not insinuating a casual conversation. No, it's pointing us to a more desperate cry. It's most likely an allusion to Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 36, Jesus cried, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Every time we by the Spirit cry, Abba, Father, we can be sure that he hears us because he gave his son on our behalf. So in desperate times, we can cry the same cry that Jesus did in desperate times. We can cry the same cry he cried in the garden. And the reason we can cry that cry is that he didn't stay in the garden, but on the next day he went to Calvary. And we should not be confused about the fatherhood of God, that though he's the creator of all people, only those who come to him through Jesus know him as father. And it is the spirit that brings us to Jesus so that we can, with Jesus, call God Abba, Father. But then the spirit's ministry of assurance goes further. In verse 16, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does this mean? How does the spirit bear witness? Is this some subjective message we feel somewhere in our heart, our soul? No, I don't don't think it is. The Bible tells us much of the Spirit's ministry, and it tells us enough of the Spirit's ministry to, to not lead us to think that He is going to speak a word of assurance outside of the Word of God. He bears witness with our spirit to the Word of God. He bears witness with our spirit by the Word. So when we read a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, Beginning in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved And when we read that, if it weren't for the Spirit, we honestly would have to say, that can't be me. But it's the Spirit that bears witness and says, that is you. That is you. One, predestined from the foundations of the world to adoption. One in whom every spiritual blessing is now available. One in whom the Father has received. The Spirit bears witness by convincing us that we are who the Bible says we are. The Spirit also bears witnesses with us by convicting us. The Spirit bears witness by the word, by convicting us by that word. I think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves 
and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines for our good that we may share in his holiness. When we are convicted by the word of God, when we are rebuked by the word of God, when we are corrected by the word of God, that is the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and we should no longer live after the desires of the flesh and we are to kill sinful desires. And lastly, the spirit's testimony gives us assurance about the future. The spirit's testimony gives you assurance about the future. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a grace we see here. If we are adopted, we are heirs. Christ will share his inheritance with us. What is his inheritance? Well, it's everything. It's the new heavens and the new earth. But notice there in verse 17, it says that we are heirs of God. Heirs of God. What was most precious to Jesus? What is most precious to Jesus? It's his relationship with his heavenly father. And here, he is delighted to share with the Christian what is most important to him his Father. And because we are in Christ, by the Spirit, we know that we are heirs of God. And since we are heirs with Christ, the glory that he has now, we will one day have. Jesus is now glorified. We are not. And that's why we still need to kill sin. And until then, it is the Spirit that assures us that we are destined for glory. But between now and glory, there will be suffering. And here specifically in verse 17, it says that provided we suffer with him, Christ, the suffering here is suffering for the cause of Christ. If the world and the devil hated Jesus because he came from the Father, they will hate you too now if you've been adopted into God's family. So here, the Spirit helps us prepare to suffer because he assures us that we are heirs and that we are heirs of glory. The Christian will suffer in a fallen world and the Christian will suffer for the sake of the gospel in the fallen world. But here, this wonderful truth of being adopted in Christ, confirmed by the Spirit to us, this helps us with all suffering in a fallen world. Not just suffering for the cause of the gospel, but all suffering. Because now there's a great difference in our suffering. Because we are categorically among those who can never be condemned. 
because we are now those who are in the family of God by adoption and can never be kicked out. The suffering we experience is never punitive. We are no longer under condemnation. And so the suffering we experience, if it's not suffering for the cause of the gospel, it is still part of our Heavenly Father's purpose for purging us maybe, but it's not punitive. Because our suffering, it's preparing us for glory. It may be preparing us for glory by showing us the consequences of living after the flesh, or it may be preparing us for glory by stripping away every earthly comfort we've come accustomed to. If we didn't have the Spirit's witness, then suffering would be frightening. But because of the Spirit's witness, we can be assured that any suffering that we are experiencing or will experiencing will be the worst suffering we'll ever experience because we are heirs of God destined for glory. Because of the Spirit's witness, we can suffer with Christ as we await his return. And like Christ, we can cry, Abba, Father, in our suffering. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again and ask for the blessing on the preaching of his word tonight. Would you pray with me? Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that your word would be held in high esteem, that we would tremble under it, honor it, and receive it with humble faith. We ask that we would be delivered from the flesh, that we would be delivered from temptation as Jesus taught us to pray, that we would know victory over the evil one, that you would guard us. And so God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may our hearts be directed to your love, the love that you have for us as your very own children. And may our eyes be fixed on the steadfastness of our Savior as we persevere awaiting his return. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.